This morning we'll be going from the 15th verse all the way to the end of the chapter. As I read now, please remember that these are the words of the Lord. In those days, I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I testified against them on the day they sold food. Also, the men of Tyre were living there, who brought in fish and all kinds of merchandise, and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, even profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same? So our God brought on us all this city, all this calamity? Yet you are adding to His anger on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now it happened that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem, before the Sabbath I said the word, and the doors were shut. Then I said that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I had some of my young men stand at the gates, so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent their night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will send forth my hand against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I said to the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and come as gatekeepers to keep the Sabbath day holy. For this also, remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children... Half spoke the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but only the tongue of his own people. So I contended with them, and cursed them, and struck some of them, and pulled out the hair, and made them swear by God, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take up their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations... There was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God gave him to be king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you, that you have done all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God, by marrying foreign women? And even one of the sons of Joedah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So I made him flee away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and ensured that the responsibilities stood for the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I arranged for the supply of wood at fixed times and for the first fruits. Remember me. O oh my God, for good. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be, to God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And as we do each week, we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time. 
Father, we come before you a needy people, a people who, a people who need rest. Lord, as I speak this morning, would it be your spirit that moves through this congregation by the power of your word to give your people the rest that they need, even perhaps bringing rest to those hearts that have not yet found it. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. Well, several years ago, someone put me on to a TED Talk called Sleep is Your Superpower. In it, brain scientist and sleep expert Dr. Matt Walker states that our greatest defense against disease isn't the pills, but the pillows. For example, he asserts that men who get no more than five hours of sleep a night will have a testosterone level equivalent to someone 10 years their senior. So missing just three hours of sleep at night, he asserts, ages a man by 10 years. And similar results were found among women. Most of us know how hard it is to remember something after one of those long nights with the red eyes. But Dr. Walker says that this isn't an isolated phenomenon. A consistent lack of healthy sleep over time leads to a compounding, degrading of your mental faculties. And they've even linked it to conditions like Alzheimer's disease. He also mentioned that a lack of sleep leads to smaller reproductive organs. Let any man who has ears to hear, hear. I'll link to that talk in Mattermost this week if you want to listen to it. It's very good. But this morning, we're going to conclude our almost year-long study of Ezra and Nehemiah. We've scoured these two books so that we might know how to build and fight for King Jesus here in Anderson County. And in this 13th chapter, God, in His infinite wisdom, leaves us with three reminders. You might even say three warnings, three things to watch out for. The first one we looked at last week. He says, keep my temple clean. Keep it clean. Keep it free from idolatry. And if you find any, cast them out into the streets. At the end of this morning's section of text we're going to look at, the Lord warns His people against worldliness and the infection of worldliness into the congregation of His people. But we're going to begin this morning with what may be the most difficult thing for reformed, covenantal, driven, Christian homeschooling families in our society today. And it's the reminder, do not neglect my rest. Do not neglect my rest. If we aim to be successful with our talents here in Clinton, Tennessee, and have something glorious to hand back to our Savior upon His arrival when He comes again on the clouds, we are going to have to do it as a people at rest. Chief among God's many graces, sleep, rest, a pause, a repose, a halt, or perhaps a holiday, a season of what the psalmist calls Selah. 
This is a magnificent gift and grace from God. It's probably not an exaggeration to say that God built into the fabric of the physical universe a superpower-like strength in our sleep. Now, in keeping with the theme of last week's sermon, neglecting God's rest will cost you something, and it might cost you far more than you ever realized. In Exodus 20, Israel was commanded to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Moses says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave or your cattle or the sojourner who is within your gates. For, and then he grounds it in creation, in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the longest commandment in the Decalogue, but it's pretty straightforward. The Sabbath day is a holy day. Six days of work, one day for rest. No exceptions. No family members, no neighbors get to work, not even your farm animals. The command is grounded in the creation and Yahweh himself taking a day of rest after he completed All of his works. Now look at verse 15 of our text this morning. In those days, these are in the days after Nehemiah returned from his trip to Persia and visiting King Artaxerxes again. He said, I saw in Judah some who were, and then he lists off five different Sabbath-breaking situations, five violations of the fourth commandment. In verse 15, You see that he saw Jews working in the wine press on the Sabbath. He saw people loading up caravans full of items for sale on the Sabbath. He saw families running essentially a farmer's market on the Sabbath. The whole congregation of Israel was complicit, it seemed, in allowing foreigners, specifically the men of Tyre here listed, they were allowing them to sell goods inside the city walls of Jerusalem on the Sabbath. They wanted the convenience of shopping for their groceries, even on the Sabbath. Now, the original audience was meant to hear this listed in this way. It was meant to hear it as a rapid-fire series of accusations. One charge, and then another, and then another. Because what's actually happening here is the beginning of a formal lawsuit. And this is contained in the, in the word that he contended, verse 17 there in front of you. This is prosecutorial language. In other words, Nehemiah is beginning the process of taking the people of Israel to court over their violation of the covenant that they had made with God back in chapter 10. Now keep in mind that Israel is essentially a theocracy. So religious violations can actually wind you up in legal trouble in Nehemiah's day. And then he asks a rhetorical question in verse 18. Haven't you learned anything from our history? Did not your fathers do the exact same thing? So that, and this is interesting, he links the judgment of God on the nation of Israel during the early reign of the kings 
and all the calamity that happened in the city, he links it to Sabbath breaking. Did not your fathers do the exact same thing so that God brought on us and on this city all of this calamity? Now, this is something that we should consider at length, beloved. There's something important right here in this text having to do with God's Sabbath. A question that I'd have for you is, why did Israel not want to obey the Sabbath? Or, or another way to ask it would be, what did Israel have against the Sabbath? In Exodus 16, this is before the Decalogue was even given to Moses, there was a man violating the Sabbath, gathering manna. He gathered manna on the day when they said, no, the Lord said, I'll give you enough on Friday, so you'll have enough for Friday and Saturday. But they still went out and gathered on the Sabbath. In Numbers, you remember the story of the man who was gathering sticks on the Sabbath. He was executed for it. The entire period of the monarchy was typified by Sabbath transgression after Sabbath transgression over and over again. We get to the prophet Amos who prophesied in the northern kingdom. He regularly heard the people say things like, when will the new moon pass over so that we may sell grain? And when will the Sabbath be done that we may open the wheat market? That's from Amos chapter 8 verse 5. Just before Babylonian exile, the southern kingdom had completely abandoned the day of rest altogether. In a last-ditch effort, Jeremiah the prophet said, Thus says Yahweh, Take care of yourselves and do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. You shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. From Jeremiah 17. Yet, the following verse, they did not listen or incline their ears, but stiffened their necks in order not to listen or receive discipline. In summarizing the early Israeli history, God condemns his people, his covenant people, through the prophet Ezekiel by saying, Keep my Sabbaths holy. And they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am Yahweh your God. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to do my judgments, which, if a man does them, he will live by them. And they profaned my Sabbaths. God commanded a gift for the people to receive. And his people hated him. They hated him for it. And they hated the gift. Here's an interesting thought. Even though God's people spurned his rest all through the Old Testament, Yahweh still honored the Sabbath. Do you remember right after Nebuchadnezzar carted Judah away to exile? The word of God says in 1 Chronicles 36, And they were slaves to him and to his sons, until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. And this is the purpose that he gives. This is the reason that he ties the exile together with transgression. He says, To fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had made up for its 
Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were fulfilled. Israel wouldn't rest or let the land rest. But Yahweh did. He didn't forget about it. It wasn't a throwaway to him. He didn't think, well, they didn't obey. I guess we'll just start over again and move forward. He said, no, the land will still get its Sabbaths. You cannot miss that the day of rest is something enormously significant to our God. Now, many of you are probably wondering right now, well, if it's that important, does that mean that we have to keep the Sabbath? And the answer to that question isn't a simple well, that was then, and this is now. So, no, not really. If God cared enough for the land to give it rest that it missed, we should consider seriously how this applies to us. Don't just go with the, I'm a New Covenant Christian, so I can throw all that stuff out. I'll begin by saying that we're a church that is committed to the core truths of Scripture. And we are, as we've said many times, going to be liberally minded towards secondary matters. Historically, questions of obedience to the fourth commandment have been solidly in that second tier category. Now, there are some who are pretty stringent about this fourth commandment. They're a little sour-faced. They suck joy out of the room. They're legalistic like church trolls that are out there wanting everybody to avoid even a brisk walk on the Sabbath day. Now, say that a little tongue-in-cheek, there is going to be disagreement on this issue. Paul said in Colossians 2, Therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, I can't overstate how massively important this is. Think back to the creation of the world. Think back to the creation of the world. God created all things in six consecutive 24-hour days. And then He rested on the seventh day. We think of the first chapter of Genesis largely in terms of just human history. God created the world. He did it in six 24-hour periods, rested for the seventh day. This is all the story of what was, what happened back then. But God is also giving us the outline of the rest of the story. You could think of Genesis 1 almost as an index book for how the rest of the story is going to go. In other words, the grand narrative of the world is going to be things going on, work being done, over and over again. And then finally it'll culminate in a glorious eschatological rest. So Israel, as God's representative image bearers on earth, those who were bearing His name before the nations, they were to work just like Yahweh did for six 24-hour days, and then rest on the Sabbath. This was, in a sense, a living prophecy, if you will. Yahweh is our sovereign. He's the only sovereign. And He is orchestrating history towards a grand conclusion in which His people will finally come and rest with Him. This is the way that Exodus 20 grounds 
the fourth commandment. For in six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. And then he rested on the seventh day. Now, consider this. This is where it starts to get interesting. The fourth commandment is repeated again in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 5. But there, in Deuteronomy 5, it's not grounded in the creation narrative. It's grounded in their deliverance from Egypt. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, Moses says. For you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath just doesn't point to creation. And it doesn't even point to a final eschatological, joyous, resting solution. It points to salvation. Specifically, a salvation yet to be revealed. Paul makes this plain in Colossians 2. In his teaching on the Sabbath, he said that it is only a shadow of what is to come. Speaking of heaven. But, he says, the substance of the Sabbath, the weightiness of it, all of the gravity of it, that belongs to Christ. Sabbath equals a shadow. A shadow of the eternal rest. But Christ, He's the meaning. He's the telos. He's the antitype. He's the fulfillment, the conclusion, the omega of the Sabbath. You see, here's the thing. Humanity does not have to wait for God to come one day and bring rest in an eschatological conclusion. Christ Jesus, the ultimate Sabbath of God, broke that rest into human history already. He is that rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you Sabbath. If you come to me, I'm the Sabbath. I will give you Sabbath. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The not yet of the coming eternal Sabbath is already in our time today. Anyone who has, as the writer of Hebrews says it, entered God's rest, that is Christ, has already begun resting from his labors as God did from his. In the same way that God rested from all of his work, if we enter through the door, Christ Jesus, and experience rest, we're already resting from our labors, even though the final rest hasn't come. This is seen most clearly in the resurrection of Jesus. Whereas the Jews worked all week as God did, and then rested to symbolize the coming final rest, and whereas the unbelieving world just works and works and works with no rest, grinding it out with no hope, no assurance of salvation, no hope of ever reaching God in a justified state, this is the best news that I have for you this morning. Christ begins 
the new week and the new creation as the final Adam completely at rest. He says, it's finished. And so each week, we come here on the first day of the week so that we might meet with Christ and then we're propelled by that view of Christ, that resting in Him to work for the will of His good pleasure. Instead of six days of work, one day of rest, we now rest to begin our week and then we go work in the power of that rest for Christ's glory. To take it even further, every minute of our lives, which includes all of the good works that God designed for you to do, every minute is now done at rest. It's not a work to try and gain justification anymore. We already have that in Christ. But wait, there's even more. It's in this continual resting in Christ throughout each day that we're actually enabled to bear fruit for God. If anyone abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. You see how important rest is. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But starting each week, we come here to glory in Christ. And each morning we get up to seek him and to savor him. And in resting in him, we're enabled, we're propelled forward to a week of service unto God. The Christian Sabbath is Jesus Christ. And if you haven't entered that rest, can I call you as a minister of Christ's gospel to do that today? Why wait any longer? Why pine after appetites that never satisfy your soul? Why work for the next thing that you think, well, once I lay hold of that, then I'll finally get to relax? Every person in this room who has entered through the narrow door, that is Jesus Christ alone, is resting. We're already at rest. There's no more work for us. We're trusting in Christ. And all the good works that Christ wants us to do, we do by resting in Him. Can a Christian profane the Sabbath? Yes. By trying to add to the finished work of Christ, he can. By working in your own strength rather than from the fuel that comes from abiding in His grace, that's also profaning the Sabbath. Anything that would be the equivalent of hearing Jesus' words, it is finished, and saying, hang on just a minute. That almost sounds blasphemous to say. But how often do we do that when we say, I can muscle through. I've just got to get this done. I know I'm feeling the Spirit right now, but can't listen this is important. Someone will ask, but what about the day? What do we do with the Sabbath of the Old Covenant? What about the Fourth Commandment? I want to read to you this morning from chapter 22, section 8 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. It reads, the Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs aforehand, do not only 
observe a holy rest all day from their works, words, and thoughts about worldly employment and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in public and private exercises of worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. This is what is called a strict Sabbatarian perspective. No worldly employment, no recreation, not even talking about it or thinking about it. That's pretty serious. And I was a little chidey earlier with my mean-spirited legalist example. But if this, the way that this is stated in the 1689, is your deeply held conviction of how to properly observe the Sabbath within the New Covenant, and you think that it should operate just this way, then practice it with all your might and do it with a smile on your face. Do it with joy in your heart. Do it as unto the Lord. I will say that your three elders don't hold this strict of a perspective. This is one of the primary reasons that our church looks to the first London Baptist Confession of Faith rather than the second. It, it isn't as heavy-handed on some of these secondary issues, and that fits with our church's mission. Your elders don't hold to this strict of a view, or else we would have stopped speed volleyball a long time ago. <laughs> we would consider ourselves to holding to a Sabbath principle, or you might call it the general equity of the Sabbath. Strict adherence to the Sabbath, that is Friday at sundown, to Saturday at sundown is no longer required in the new covenant. However, every Christian is to honor the Sabbath rest of Christ, which includes meeting for weekly worship with the saints of God. Additionally, the principle of regular days and seasons of resting under the Lord is a timeless and enduring gift of God. You weren't made to work any other way. God built this into the fabric of the universe. So what does that look like for our families? I mean, specifically the three elders. How does this play out in our homes? Well, we avoid doing normal daily chores on that day, that day of rest. There's an attitude of shalom, peace, rest, all day. We give to the children based on a principle of grace, for that day, rather than how we would operate throughout the week, which is more based on merit. This is just a day where God lavishes good on us. So we want to picture that to our children through the way that we treat them on this day. We try and say yes to reasonable requests from our children, and I should add men, you should also answer reasonable requests to your wife with a yes, on the Sabbath day. We don't neglect the principle of rest. It is folly to do so. Listen to the Amplified Bible's reading of Psalm 127, verse 2. It is vain for you to rise early, to retire late, and to eat the bread of anxious labors. This is so beautiful, the way this is phrased. For he, that is Yahweh, God, gives blessings to his beloved even in his sleep. We're made for rest. We are made for Sabbath. Now, that's the way that this might look for the three elders. And you might practice it a little bit differently. Some people don't like to talk about worldly business. 
on Sundays, that's fine. Some people don't like to bring their eggs or their produce or things and pass those out on the Sabbath day. I mean, you look right here in the text, and I mean, these folks, they had their farmer's market going on Sunday. That's understandable. However, I would say we're far removed from this context, and these people were spending a lot of time and attention to get these things ready. So it's not a one-to-one comparison. You can't just say, well, they didn't... They weren't allowed to sell anything, so, but I have a, something that I offered to give to somebody, but I better not bring that on the Sabbath. Or I don't need to take a check on the Sabbath because we happen to be at church at the same time and we live in completely different communities. It's not a one-to-one comparison. It's not necessarily wrong. Don't violate your convictions. I'm not saying that. But do understand that there may be more here. There may be more freedom. There may be more grass in the sheep pen of Christ than just at first glance. And this is what I really want to get to, beloved. If our church follows the path of ancient Israel, and what I mean by that, if we despise God's gift of seasons of rest, of days of rest, we will, without a doubt, you can guarantee this, we are going to see in the coming years major losses in marriages, in families, in businesses, and in the unity we have here at Christ the King. Just because we refuse to rest. Burnout, our physical exhaustion, burnout, is eating godly, reformed, theologically sound Christian families alive right now. Going, 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 never stopping even with fellowship, even with constant going, constant fellowship. This last week, Michael Foster referenced on Twitter a trend that he's seeing among 40-ish-year-old women from large, think six-plus kids. He calls them conservative Christian families. He says that these mothers are falling into affairs and one-night stands leading to divorce in pursuit of the happy life. He gives a number of reasons for this, and I'll link to the tweet in Mattermost this week. If you want to read through it, I think it's worth your consideration. But the very first aspect of this multifaceted chain of events that leads women to do things like this And he says he knows of about 30 examples, eight of them personally, though he's heard of many others through networking with other men and churches. The very first aspect of this is burnout. Foster says, these women, these mothers, are worn thin by the difficulty of the life they've chosen. The work of a mother is physically and emotionally taxing. It can exacerbate mental health issues, both real ones and ones that are more of a play act. He goes on to say that the mother of a large family begins to feel as though her family has usurped any sense of her personal identity. She feels like a nobody. Now, think about this in the context of never resting. We're a driven people, beloved. We run well, work well, and play well. If we're going to make any significant advances in the kingdom of Jesus in Anderson County, we're only going to do it if we're a people who rest well. Every one of us. 
from the least to the greatest. Now, I know that was a long start to the sermon. Look with me at verse 19. Just as it grew dark, this is sunset Friday night, at the gates of Jerusalem, before the Sabbath, I said the word and the doors were shut. Then I said that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Additionally, Nehemiah had men stand guard at the gates to ensure no one climbed in by another way. Some brazen souls attempted to undermine these protections by lodging as close to the city as they could get. But Nehemiah warned them, and this basically amounts to him threatening to arrest them. He told them to pack up and leave, and they did. Lastly, Nehemiah had the Levites assume their regular patrol of the gates, which had probably been neglected since they were forced out of Jerusalem to their farms in the countryside. That's from verse 22. I want to give you three things that you can think about to increase rest and a view, a right view of rest and Sabbath in your home and in your family. Number one, ensure your family is resting together and guard that time. Reform folks are all cheers and pom-poms about this. And then we get to Sunday. I've heard from enough of you that Sunday feels less like a break, sometimes more like a marathon. Set up, worship, meal and clean up, games, home gathering, late night theology conversations, kids passed out throughout the day. I'm not saying that any of that is inherently sinful. But when are you resting? What if you don't want to miss that body life on Sunday, those events, those get-togethers? What time or day can you set for rest for your family? Nehemiah closed the doors of the city, and they didn't open them until the rest, the Sabbath, was over. So set a time and guard it well. The second thing I want to encourage you to do, tell others that you're not available during that time. Tell them that you can't do anything during that time. My family, we need to rest. I'm sorry, I won't be able to make it this time. A man will often feel convicted about setting aside moments of reprieve like this. And then another family will come up and say, hey, would you like to come over and fellowship? And he immediately caves. Get some backbone and say, thank you so much, but no thanks, not today. You don't have to threaten them. You don't have to say, if you ask me again, I will send forth my hand against you. <laughs> Consider keeping that time the way that Nehemiah did, though. Look how he valued this. This is crucial. This is important. you got doctors who hate God saying, we're ruining our health and our lives by not getting sleep. Men who don't even know the grace of God see that this is woven into everything in the universe. Nehemiah wasn't worried about his protection of God's family hurting people's feelings. I know it sounds counterintuitive to a church that loves fellowship, and don't hear this as elders saying, you need to stop fellowshipping. Enjoy your Christian fellowship, build each other up, but don't forget to rest. The last thing, get your family involved. Dads, tell your family what you're going to do. Tell your family how you're going to achieve rest and a season or a period of rest 
whether it's long afternoon nap or a day where you're sitting around the home, you're laughing together, playing, thinking about the Lord, whatever it may be. Tell your wife and kids how you think this should look and then ask them to remind you if you're forgetting things. Set the tone and vision for that day. I want to say yes to you guys as often as I can. We're going to go do something as a family on that day. We'll go do something together. We will have a period of rest sometime throughout the week. These are just ideas. We will make a special Sabbath dinner together on one night or another night. And if you need ideas, there are members here who have thought about this. I'm sure that would love to give you some ideas of how it works for their family. Did you notice that Nehemiah, at the end of this section of text, he expected the favor of God because of his guarding of the Sabbath? For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Church, are you missing the blessing of God because you refuse to break? You refuse to rest. Take the example of our Lord Jesus, encapsulated in some of the most brilliant lyrics of any song I've heard, from Andrew Peterson's song, His Heart Beats. We listen to this every Easter Sunday morning, our family does. My favorite line in the song is, He rises, Jesus, He rises, and His work is already done. So He's resting as He rises to reclaim the bride that He won. That encapsulates this whole idea. One day of rest, six days to fulfill the ministry of the kingdom, completely at rest. We can conquer it, Christ the King, as Jesus did, resting on his gospel. It is finished. All the work's done. Let's look at, briefly now at this last section of chapter 13. The events of verses 23 to 31 mark the third time since Babylon that the Jews have become unequally yoked with unbelievers. Ezra chapter 9, that was the event where they had to put away the women and the children of the nations and the intermarriages that had taken place. In Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 18, there's a case mentioned of an intermarriage prior to their taking the covenant in Nehemiah chapter 10. Now Nehemiah is made aware of this backsliding through, interestingly enough, the children and what he hears the children saying, or perhaps what he hears the children not saying. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but only the tongue of his own people. Consider this, from the mouths of those from whom the Lord had prepared praise, Psalm 8 verse 2, Nehemiah instead heard them parroting the language of Babylon. This is going the wrong direction. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. This particular issue, the intermarriage with the nations, isn't currently a problem for us here at Christ the King. No one is willing to give their children in marriage to unbelievers. No one is voluntarily sending their children to the government indoctrination camps, that is public schools. No one would even think of sending their children to a neighbor's house unsupervised, even if you've heard that person's a believer. So this mixing of the world with the faithful, is it a non-issue? I think we all know better than that. P. 
Peter warns us against the sneaky insurgency of worldliness among us. You, therefore, be on your guard, lest, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall away from your own steadfastness. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Pastor J.C. Ryle warned his Anglican congregation about this kind of worldliness, this backsliding, by preaching a two-part sermon series. The sermons were titled, He Lingered and She Looked Back. And of course, he was speaking about Lot and Lot's wife. You remember that they were given a choice of land by Uncle Abraham, and Lot chose the Jordan Valley, fertile as it was. Yet, the scripture is clear to mention it was close to Sodom. And Lot knew it. But he went down there and he pitched his tent near the city anyway. And then when the angels come into Sodom, they find that Lot's no longer outside the city in a tent. He's living inside. And there's some indication that he actually might be in politics in the city. He's sitting at the gate, sitting as a judge. They accuse him of that later on. And then when he's told to leave, he lingers. The worldliness had infected him. Perhaps his wife had encouraged the move. Perhaps she wanted the society and life and bustle of the city. Perhaps she had come to love the place more than her husband or his God. For when she too was given clear instructions by the angel to not even consider a second glance in mid-sprint, she looked back. One of these two went to heaven, though... We must say, after the most tragic of lives, one of the most disgusting situations happened to Lot by his daughters. And the other went to hell. And that is where she is at this day. Beloved, beware of compromise leading to a love of the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 1 John 2.15 I know, I know. We're not Gnostics. The world is good. And the Bible says that nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. It can all be made holy by the word of God and prayer. For the Christian, there is a very real sense in which in the new covenant, everything is lawful. But don't forget, Paul said, not all things are helpful. Everything is lawful, but not everything's beneficial. And I think if I had to narrow it down to one area where I, I think the nations creep into our midst, the Trojan horse here in the Reformed Covenantal All of Christ for All of Life camp is usually the media. Now I know somebody's going to roll their eyes and say, here we go, throw out your TV, video games are of the devil. Media isn't inherently bad. There's so many good redemption stories out there. It doesn't have to be one or the other. You can have both. You can have media and Christ. I don't have to give up my Nintendo, Netflix, and Disney just to serve Jesus. You do not. I agree with all of that. I'm not here to argue that you must. Let me ask, though. If Nehemiah came to your house for fellowship one evening, would he hear your children speaking the language of the kingdom of heaven or the language of the content producers of the world? 
I've told my kids before that when I was young, I was given unrestricted access to whatever media I wanted. I could pretty much watch, play, listen to whatever my heart desired. And I wish I could go back and change that. I wouldn't go back in time and take a 12-gauge to my TV, though the thoughts crossed my mind. But I would love to see my father sitting in an armchair, talking me through a wise selection of shows and not being afraid to tell me no if something was sinful or I wasn't mature enough for it. Even if my friends at church had seen it, young ones. Beloved, give thought to how the media brings the world into your home. Will you fight for the holiness of your home for the sake of your family? Look at how seriously Nehemiah takes this issue of worldliness. This is like an episode of Cops. I mean, he's going crazy. He contends with these people, which means he begins a prosecution according to the law of Moses. That's that legal language again. He curses them vocally, this is important, triggering the curse of Nehemiah chapter 10, for which they had sworn to keep the covenant of God. And if they did not, they would be cursed, and Nehemiah's cursing them. He's triggering the curse. Then he cuffs them, which Proverbs 19.25, strike a scoffer and the simple may become prudent. And then last, he covenants them. He makes them covenant again. You must swear that you will never again take foreign wives for yourselves or your sons. This was an individual person to person. As he's going around, I'm restoring you to the covenant you swore. After I contended with you, cursed you, and beat you up. And he anchors those actions in the story of Solomon, whom there was no man like him. He was loved by his God, king over all Israel. And foreign women caused even the greatest of kings to sin. Verse 27 is essentially a pointed follow-up rhetorical question. Do you really think you're better than Solomon? I would ask you when it comes to the way that worldliness gets into your home, the sneaky, subtle, little bit by little bit, we let it into our homes, in whatever format that may be, media or otherwise, do we really think that we're better than the greatest men that we've seen in this book? Do we really think that just because so-and-so at church has the liberty of conscience to do that, I should dive all the way in? Do we really think because there are other churches in our nation who have done ministry for 40 years and done it so well and they say, freedom in Christ, I can go now. When perhaps within the last year I was just delivered from an independent fundamental Baptist church where they restricted everything about my lives and I've had zero discipleship. Think about this too in terms of church discipline. This is a picture of God disciplining the members of his congregation through a man, Nehemiah. He brings charges against the people, fatherly discipline for neglecting to keep the covenant, fights and quarrels with others to slow their slide into depravity, hopefully leading to repentance and renewal of the pledge to follow Yahweh. Beloved, it doesn't matter how high a position you currently think you hold in your own mind. Do you want to be driven away from Christ's church in discipline for worldliness? God says 
that we must if you won't repent. Nehemiah made even the high priest's grandson flee away from him. I don't care who he is. He's married into the nations. He's totally bought into the worldly regime. Get him out of here. Now that young boy can go and repent and get rid of that foreign wife and come back into the congregation just like we today, convicted of our sin, can repent and come back to the people of God, fully restored. But do you want to be remembered by God for polluting His church? Remember them, oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites, verse 29. This is what I'm saying, church, and I'll conclude with these words. Proverbs 27.23 says, Know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. These people didn't get into the place where their children were leavened by the nations overnight. These children didn't learn the Ashdodite language and have no idea how to speak anything, the Hebrew language, in one day. It was little compromises after little compromises, after little compromises. Do you need to repent? Do you need to repent of the amount of media that you consume, the kinds of media that you consume? Do you need to repent for saying yes to every offer of fellowship you're given in this church and never giving your, chance, your family a chance to rest? Children, do you need to repent that you see different family standards from your own and then in sin you go complain to your parents, why can't we do it that way? Nehemiah said, thus I cleansed them from every foreign thing and ensured the responsibilities stood for the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I arranged for the supply of wood and fixed times for the first fruits. Ezra and Nehemiah finished their earthly building projects. But sanctification is a lifelong process. I know that Nehemiah did this, concluded his letter, and I'm sure he went right back to work. Because the people were always going to be reforming. Semper reformanda. They would have to come back to these truths again and again and again. And it could be that in years to come, our church looks back at Nehemiah 13 and says, Am I keeping my temple clean? Am I honoring God's gift of rest? Have I let worldliness creep into my life? But we can, to use the common phrase, rest assured. Because Jesus has promised us that no matter what, He will finish the work that He started. My Father is working until now. And now I'm working. To do what? To build his church. To build his church. And as we build and fight for Jesus, we look to the one who already told us that he will receive a finished kingdom when he comes. He will receive a bride who is spotless and without blemish. So to conclude with the last verse, know this for certain, Christ the King. In Christ Jesus, God will always and forever remember us for our good. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time in these books and how you have loved and ministered to our souls as we've studied. But Lord, we confess to you 
there is still so much work to be done. In each of us, we see so much work to be done. Help us to rest in Christ's finished work. Help us to rest in all that he's done for us, knowing that in that place of rest, we will find the drive and the joy to will and to work for his good pleasure. Encourage us now as we go to the table, remembering that we can't add anything to that rest. That this new covenant has already been cut. That the blood has already been poured out and the body has been hung on that cross. And that you did it for each of us. And if anyone in here has not entered that rest, I pray that it would be the only thing on their minds. That they are restless until they find rest in Christ Jesus. And I pray that they would by the power of your spirit. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.